do you, Baron Frankenstein, take this woman to be your bride? Do you promise to haunt her with old horror movies, toys, and comics? Yes, I want friend. Woman. Friend. And you, Baroness, do you take this man beast to be your lawfully bound husband? Do you promise to endure hours of unimaginable torture as he rambles about monster movies and long-dead actors? Close enough. Then by the power invested in me by Count Alucard, I now pronounce you supermates. You may bite or kiss the bride. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of Supermates, a husband-wife geek cast. I'm Chris. I'm Cindy. And welcome back to the House of Frankenstein. Or maybe more specifically, the Hammer House of Frankenstein. This is true. As we do every year, we're crossing the pond to examine one of my many obsessions, and I have many, England's Hammer Studios and their proliferation of gothic horror films, which ties in quite nicely to the crossover event currently running through the Fire & Water Podcast Network and this month of Halloween, Dark Podcasts of Forbidden Love, which we named after the old DC title, Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yes, many of our shows will be focusing on gothic romances with a horror twist in honor of this month, and this one is no exception. This time we're focusing on the first sequel to The Horror of Dracula, which was Hammer's first Dracula film. This film, the sequel, is an interesting one since it actually contains no Dracula, The story behind that is an intriguing one that we'll get into, but we know we're in good hands because the film stars one of my personal favorites, Peter Cushing, as the screen's greatest Van Helsing. Come at me, bro. So let's get to it. (laughs) Yeah, he is your favorite. Yeah, and he is the best Van Helsing. Well, yeah. Yeah. The Brides of Dracula was released July 7th in the UK and September the 5th in the US in 1960. Directed by Terrence Fisher, screenplay by Jimmy Sangster, Peter Bryan, and Edward Percy. We have Peter Cushing as Dr. Van Helsing, Martita Hunt as Baroness Meinster, Yvonne Monlar as Marianne Danielle, Frida Jackson as Greta, David Peel as Baron Meinster, Miles Mallison as Dr. Tobler, Henry Oscar as Herr Lang, Mona Washburn as Frau Lang, Andre Melly as Gina, Victor Brooks as Hans, Fred Johnson as the curé, or the priest in this case, Michael Ripper as the coachman, Norman Pierce as the landlord, Vera Cook as the landlord's wife, Marie Devereaux as the village girl, Harold Scott as Severin, Michael Mulcaster as the man in black, not Johnny Cash. Transylvania, land of dark forests, dread mountains, and black, unfathomed lakes. Still the home of magic and devilry as the 19th century draws to its close. Count Dracula, monarch of all vampires, is dead, but his disciples live on to spread the cult and corrupt the world. A speeding coach is stopped in the woods by a large log. As the coachman moves the roadblock, a mysterious man in black watches. The man hitches a ride on the coach to the village inn. The landlord and his wife are shocked to learn the coach's only occupant was a lone girl, Marianne Danielle. 
arriving from France to take a student teacher position at the nearby Lying Academy for girls. They try to rush the girl back to the coach, but it's too late. Paid off by the man in black, the coachman has left his passenger behind. Having apparently seen this scenario play out many times before, the townspeople slowly file out of the tavern as the landlord attempts to find Marion a way to get to the school and away from there that very night. Their preparations are in vain, however, as the person they feared arrives by coach of her own. The elegant but aloof Baroness Meinster enters the tavern and quickly makes the acquaintance of Marianne. She offers her a place to stay for the night and a trip to the school in the morning. At the castle Meinster, Marianne is introduced to the Baroness's only servant, Greta, who takes the girl to her room to prepare for dinner. On her way up the lavish staircase, Marianne notes an extra place set for dinner. Greta informs her that the Baroness always accommodates possible guests in such ways. From her room's window, Marianne swears she sees a young man on the balcony below, despite thinking the Baroness and Greta live alone. At dinner, the Baroness confirms that the man that Marianne saw was her son, locked away due to illness. The Baroness laments the shame her son has brought upon their family with his actions, even encouraging among the villagers the notion that he is dead. You were not wrong. You saw my son. But I thought... You thought what I wanted you to think. But I was an old woman living here alone. Now you know that I am not alone. I have a son. Please, I don't wish... My son is ill. I am so very sorry. His illness has destroyed my peace of mind in these last years. You may not believe it, but we have had gay times here. Balls, dinners, life. I am sure. People used to come from all over Europe, even from Paris, to be my guests. Until he ruined it all. He ruined it all? How? It hurt me too much not to be able to present my only child to my friends. To have to keep him locked up. Is he ill in his mind? I never see him myself. Greta looks after him. She's his old nurse. You never see him yourself? He has made me suffer so appallingly. He has his own rooms apart from the rest of the castle, only reached through that door. But all that is nothing, nothing. The vital thing is that you discovered his existence and I have explained the situation. But, madame, are you sure he's happy in there? Are madmen happy? Surely something can be done. Is there no doctor? We pray for death, he and I. At least I hope he does. The people around here think he's dead already, so I'm told, and I encourage that belief. Encourage? I see you are passing judgment on me, my child. Sleep before you pronounce sentence. Awakened by noises in the night, Marianne returns to her window, only to see the young man standing on the balcony ledge. Fearing he's attempting suicide, she rushes to his room, where she meets Baron Meinster. Trapped by a silver shackle and chain around his ankle, the Baron tells Marianne how his mother has locked him away to steal his land and title, spreading lies about his mental illness and even his death. Pledging to help free him, Danielle goes in search of the key to the shackle, hidden in the Baroness's room. The Baroness nearly catches her in the act, but Danielle escapes on the window ledge to her own balcony. There she throws the key to the Baron's room below. The Baroness is on to her tricks and confronts her in her room. She panics when she realizes... 
Marianne has given the key to her son. Marianne runs off to meet the Baron, but is soon caught in a strange and intense confrontation between mother and son. He sends Marianne to her room to wait for him, while the Baron calls for his mother. Unable to resist his gaze and voice, she obeys. Later, Marianne hears the hysterical wailings of Greta. She finds her in the Baron's room, vacillating between laughter and cries of fear and anguish over the Baron's escape. What's the matter? Why was he locked up? He's not mad. No, he's not mad. You know that much, don't you? Who got him the key? Was it you? You? It did you? Where is he? Gone. Out into the night. You don't know what you've done, but I know. Are you mad or what? Where's Madame la Baronne? She's not far away. You want to see her? She rambles on about what Marion has set free and shows her the Baroness sat in a nearby chair and quite dead. <laughs> you needn't be afraid. She's dead. What have you done? She's dead and he's free. Believing Greta has killed her, Marianne runs off into the night, out into the sprawling forest. Back at the castle, Greta talks to the lifeless body of her mistress, blaming her for encouraging her son's descent into evil. The Baroness, who now has two large bite marks on her neck, even supported the group he associated with until one member changed him into what he is today. Afterwards, she continued to provide a fresh supply of girls for him to feed upon. But despite his newfound freedom, Greta knows he will return. As she unveils his hidden coffin, he has to return before dawn. The next morning, Marianne is found unconscious in the forest by the coach of a passing traveler. But this is no tourist. This is Dr. Van Helsing, sent for by the local priest, Father Stepnik. Van Helsing revives the girl and takes her back to the inn to recuperate. While the landlord and his wife are happy to see Marianne alive and well, there is another tragedy in the village. A young girl has been found dead in the forest, and her wake is taking place on the other side of the inn. Van Helsing examines the girl's body and isn't surprised to find two bite marks on her neck. On their coach ride to the school, Van Helsing questions Marianne and tells her of why he has been called there by the priest, to root out the cult of the undead and stop it from spreading in the area. The next thing I remember was seeing you. I am afraid I have put you to a lot of trouble. Not at all. What was the name of this chateau where you stayed? The Chateau of Meinster. Do you know it? I know of it. And you're on your way to the School for Young Ladies at Batstein. I am to teach there, French and deportment. I'm sure you'll do very well at both. Merci. What about your luggage? I left it behind at the chateau. I shall have to send for it. To the Chateau of Meinster? Mm -hmm. I don't think that would be very wise. But... Now, please, let me explain. I've been asked to make a study of a strange sickness, a sickness partly physical, partly spiritual. And uh, may, may I know what it is? Have you heard of the cult of the undead? The undead? Yes. Have you heard of it? No. Are you sure? Quite. Quite sure. It is most prevalent in Transylvania and the Lower Danube. And could it spread? Unless it is stamped out. That's why I'm here. And you can help me. 
I want you to tell me everything that happened at the Chateau Meinster. But... Everything, in detail, leaving nothing out. However trivial it may seem to you. Will you do that? Yes. And when you've told me, I want you to forget it. Forget it completely and never mention it to anyone. If that is what you wish. That is a promise? Yes. Good. At the school, Dr. Van Helsing and Marianne are greeted by the jubilant Fraulein and her husband, the gruff headmaster, Herr Lang. Lang is none too happy about his new employee arriving late, but Van Helsing smooths things over with charm and credentials. As Van Helsing leaves Marianne to her new home, she is introduced to fellow student teacher, Gina. When Van Helsing returns to the inn, he finds the dead girl's father, Hans, in discussion with Father Stepnik, who is horrified to learn that the girl was buried in the hallowed churchyard in his absence. When he tells Hans she is no longer living or dead, the upset man runs away. The priest is overjoyed that Van Helsing has answered his summons, and the leading expert on vampires fills the father in on the hows and whys of the undead. What is this uh, vampirism, should I call it? It's a survival of one of the ancient pagan religions in their struggle against Christianity. And there's first, I suppose, the vampire, mm -hmm. the undead. And that passes on. Yes. A vampire, by its kiss, taking of blood from its victim, makes of that victim another vampire. So the cult grows, infinitely slowly, but it grows. A vampire rests in the day, usually in his tomb, issuing as a living form only at night. And that means they need the help, the protection, of a human being during the hours of daylight. For instance, a mother who may hide from an infected son or daughter, or a servant, either hypnotized or so devoted to the master they don't realize the evil they're doing. A lost soul. Possibly. If it wasn't for this protection, the vampires could be tracked down during the day and destroyed. How can they be destroyed? By driving a wooden stake through the heart or by burning. The tormented soul is then released and returned to the peace of death. These colonies such as you have here must be wiped out. Only then will this bondage of hell be lifted from the world. Are there ways of telling these undead from the living? They're repelled by holy things and Christian images. They're thin. They have an air of hunger about them. They cast no reflection. Not in water? Not in a mirror? No. And some have the power to transform themselves into bats. Van Helsing plans to dispatch the newly minted vampire girl before she has time to rise. Father Stepnik then gives Van Helsing a canteen full of holy water to aid him in his crusade. Arriving a bit later than he had hoped, Van Helsing witnesses an eerie sight. Greta lying on the girl's grave, coaching her through her first night of undeath. With Greta's encouragement, the girl's hand reaches through the loose dirt and opens her coffin. The father interrupts this blasphemous act and grabs Greta as Van Helsing chases after the girl. Instead of finding her, he encounters a large bat, which swoops down at him repeatedly. Only his cross manages to repel it. Van Helsing then decides to check out the source of this evil, Chateau Meinster. Inside, he sees the silver chain that once imprisoned the Baron and the imprint left by his missing coffin. He turns to see the Baroness hiding her fanged appearance behind a veil. Their conversation is cut short by the appearance of her son, hissing with fangs bared. Van Helsing again wards him off with the cross, but after a brief chase through the castle, the Baron manages to escape to his coach. The Baroness fears he will never catch her clever son. She laments her encouraging his wickedness and knows she has condemned herself through her actions, with no hope of release. He's escaped. Yes. You'll never catch him. He's too clever. 
He has taken the blood of his own mother. It was all my own fault. I loved his wildness. I encouraged it. And when this monstrous thing took possession of him, I didn't send for a priest or a doctor. I hid him and helped him to live. And now there's no release from this life, which isn't life or death. And I know I shall have to do whatever hideous thing he asks me to. There is one release. But Van Helsing knows a way, and the grateful Baroness smiles. He's going to kill her. He's going to stake her good, he is. Uh-huh. <laughs> At the Lang School, Fraulein bends the no-followers rule for Baron Meinster, who has come to visit Marianne. The arriving Herr Lang isn't having it and breaks up the love fest, an unknowingly a potential vampire bite. He ins- insults both Marianne and her suitor before realizing he's been insulting his landlord. What? Stop! What do you think you're doing? Shameless little hussy. Herr Lang. You know it's a rule, my rule. The staff are allowed no followers. What the devil do you think you're doing here? I was placed here by a most charming lady. In fact, your wife. Don't you try to be impertinent to me, sir, or I shall have the privilege of throwing you headfirst out of that window. You'll find it a most interesting way of making my closer acquaintance, Herr Lang, but hardly necessary under the circumstances. I've long wanted to meet you, an old and valued tenant. I'm no tenant of yours, you young jackass. I'm a tenant of the Meinster estate. Exactly. And I am Baron Meinster. I must apologize for not having called before, but I have been recovering from a long illness. I wouldn't have come today, except that I had some pressing business to discuss with Mademoiselle Danielle, who has just consented to become my wife. Wonderful. My shaft. I shall be grateful if you would allow Mademoiselle to stay here for a few weeks whilst I make arrangements for the wedding. Of course. We shall be more than honored. Oh, yes, indeed. May I take this opportunity of congratulating you and Frau Lang on having the most charming house and grounds. Mine hair shaft. At so low a rent. Later, Marianne and her roommate Gina discuss her impending nuptials, with Gina being all too transparent that she wished she was up for the role of a baroness. When Marianne leaves the room, Gina gets what she wants, but not in the way she wants it. When the Baron pays her a visit, you know what happens next. At Castle Meinster, Van Helsing waits for the break of dawn, then gathers his hammer and stake. He dispatches the sleeping Baroness and frees her from her curse, her face going from fanged and tortured to benign. At the end, he consults with the father, who tells him Greta had escaped him. Van Helsing informs the priest his suspicions about the Meister family were indeed correct. Also in the end is bumbling comic relief character Dr. Tobler, who in addition to being a physician is also a bit of a hypochondriac, girding his body with multiple remedies before examining the corpse of a dead girl at the Lang School. His interest, of course, piqued. Van Helsing asked to go with him, and Tobler is overjoyed to find he will accompany him for free, allowing him to collect two house call bills. Mm-hmm, a specialist bill at that. Yep. Examining Gina's body, Van Helsing points out the bite marks on her neck to Tobler, who refuses to believe that they are a mark of a vampire, laughing at ridiculous superstitions. Well, that's a bite, isn't it? Have you ever seen it before? Oh, very seldom. Once or twice in the villages in the forest. <laughs> no, that's a, probably a pet animal, a dog or a cat. The villagers fondle them, you know. It's a... The unhealthy practice, we can't stop him. This is the mark of the vampire, sometimes called the seal of Dracula. You see how it cuts through the vein? 
A vampire? Oh, no, really. No. Well, the peasants are always going on about, about werewolves and vampires. I'm a scientist. I, I always laugh at those ridiculous legends. I shouldn't if I were you. Not wanting to alarm the Langs or the students, Van Helsing lies and tells them Gina died of a fever. He asks that her body be placed in the stables and watched at all times until he returns that night. Marianne takes the opportunity to tell Van Helsing she is engaged. He is at first happy for her until he learns just who her fiancé is. When she tells him she loves the Baron, Van Helsing cannot tell her the truth, though she is puzzled by his reaction. Later that night in the stable, she relieves Frau Lang in watching the coffin. Her pleasant conversation with handyman Severin is interrupted when one of the coffin locks drops off without ever unlocking. Going out to fetch Herr Lang, Severin is attacked by the bat. While inside, Gina rises. Marianne watches in horror as her now vampirized roommate draws closer and pitches some pretty kinky stuff for an early 60s movie. Marianne. My darling Marianne. You haven't forgotten your little Gina. Put your arms around me, please. I want to kiss you, Marianne. Please be kind to me. Say that you forgive me for letting him love me. We can both love him, my darling. He's up at the old mill now. We can go there together. Van Helsing bursts in to catch the fainting Marianne as Gina runs out. Inside, Van Helsing comes clean about the Baron, which Marianne has a hard time accepting at first, but she does eventually tell him that he is at the old mill. He leaves her with a rosary for protection and makes his way to the mill. There in the loft, he finds the Baron's empty coffin and his entire entourage, including the two vampire girls and old Greta, who attacks Van Helsing and takes his crucifix. In their struggle, she falls to her death below, but takes his cross with her. As Van Helsing reaches for the cross, the Baron returns, and the two are soon locked in battle. The Baron manages to overpower our hero, and after forcing him to pass out by choking him with a chain, actually bites him. He awakens after the Baron is left, horrified to find the puncture wounds on his neck. He quickly looks about, formulating a plan of action, when seemingly all hope is lost. At the school, Marianne stupidly removes her rosary as she prepares for bed, and who should come calling but her old bull, and this time he's all fangs and bloodshot eyes. At the mill, Van Helsing holds onto a rope from above to brace himself, and places a branding iron in hot coals. He places the iron against his neck, cauterizing the bite. He yells and stumbles backward in pain, but stays conscious long enough to pour the father's holy water over his bite and burn scars, which magically heal and vanish. There's no rest for the virtuous, however, as the Baron arrives with his bride-to-be. I brought someone to see you, Van Helsing. Beautiful, isn't she? What a pity such beauty must fade. Unless we preserve it. She's going to join us, Doctor, and you are going to watch her initiation. Marianne. Don't look at his eyes. Marianne, look at me! Van Helsing grabs the holy water and splashes the Baron in a cross formation. The Baron's skin burns, his handsome face now horribly disfigured. 
As Marianne runs toward Van Helsing, the Baron kicks over the coals, setting the Hayfield windmill on fire. The Baron runs out the door while our heroes escape through the loft and outside under the windmill blades. Looking at his surroundings, the clever Van Helsing once again proves why he's vampire hunter number one by jumping onto the lower blade and holding it like a giant cross. When its shadow is cast upon the Baron below, he writhes in, in agony and succumbs to final death. Van Helsing and Marianne embrace as a windmill, apparently with Gina and the village girl inside, is consumed by flames. Okay, so what do we think? Hey, we watch it every year. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> this actually was just on Spinguli not that mm -hmm. long ago. Yeah. Despite it being revered as one of Hammer's finest effort, this movie had a very shaky start. With the breakout success of their first Dracula film in 1958, which apparently saved U.S. distributor Universal from bankruptcy, Hammer immediately went to work on a sequel. Producer Anthony Hines hired original horror of Dracula screenwriter Jimmy Sangster to pen a script under the working title, The Disciple of Dracula. In the original draft, Baron Meinster terrorizes two lead girls and a whole academy of potential victims. At the end of the film, Latour, the hero of the movie, summons the spirit of Dracula, who disciplines his disciple. Later, okay. in, summer of, yeah, later in the summer of 1959, Hammer began preparing Dracula the Damned to star Christopher Lee as the Count once more. I think they'd have trouble with that title. Uh -huh. While this was percolating, Peter Bryan was brought in to touch up the Disciple script and jettison Latour for Cushing's Van Helsing. Bryan rechristened the script The Brides of Dracula. Rather than call Dracula up like Latour, Van Helsing used the black arts to essentially do the same thing, punishing one evil with an even worse one, in this case, a swarm of bats. Peter Cushing had serious reservations about this, feeling Van Helsing would never use black magic, and so to appease their star, Hammer brought in a third writer, Edward Percy, who Cushing was familiar with. The ending was changed and shelved, although they did use it in Hammer's 1964 film, The Kiss of the Vampire, where that vampire hunter there was a little less pious. Mm -hmm. Dr. Zimmer, I believe that guy named, played by Clifford Evans from Curse of the Werewolf. While Fisher, Sangster, Cushing, production designer Bernard Robinson, and cinematographer Jack Asher returned from the previous film, the title star was missing. Uh -huh. Accounts vary as to why Christopher Lee is not in this film. Some say he immediately turned down any sequels to avoid instantaneous typecasting. Others said he wanted too much money. Still others say he was unavailable. Lee later said he was never asked to appear in this film. So, who knows? Who knows, yeah. Dracula the Dam disappeared from Hammer's schedule and was never heard of again. Because the next Dracula movie was Dracula Prince of Darkness, and that was like in 1964. So Several years, yeah. Yeah, with Lee out of the picture, literally, the title Disciple of Dracula probably would have worked a bit better, or maybe Brides of the Vampire. But Hammer wasn't about to mess with the winning formula too much. Right. And I'm sure that's why the narration is added at the beginning, to make sure the ties to the counter are pretty obvious. Speaking of which, can I say, as a graphic designer, I love the title and credit font on this movie. It's like the best horror font ever. And I sound like brick from the middle, I know. But it, 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 it does. It's like, I just want to find, I want somebody to make that font so I can like type things in it. Especially for House of Franklin's Well, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, we start out in good old Black Park Forest, the site of at least one scene in almost every, every Hammer. Every horror film. Every Hammer, Hammer movie. Yes. Yeah, every Hammer movie, yeah. <laughs> it's daylit night. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's true. It usually, yeah. You know. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't have the filter technology that they have nowadays, that's for sure. Uh, what would Zack Snyder do? Uh, we start out... Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, I already said that part, sorry. Uh, as the coachman, we have Michael Ripper, also in just about every Hammer horror. His role is small here, but he will eventually become Hammer's greatest character actor. Uh, I will admit, the first time I watched this film, which I think was years ago, back when AMC was actually American Movie Classics and showed old movies, I didn't get what the Man in Black was all about. I, I kind of thought he was part of a thread. I know, it was kind of a weird, I don't know. That is, it, but it, it, if you pay attention, you know exactly what he's there for. But if you're not quite, it helps if you've seen the movie already. Because they don't, I don't, I don't know, it's like the first time you watch it, you're not sure what he's there for mm-hmm. and... Because he, 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 I mean, he does reappear. He, he, he pays Michael Ripper outside, the coachman. Yeah. And then he walks in and throws the door open. And just as if to kind of rub it in and say, ha ha, it's happening again, people. You know. But, and then at the same time, when they go up to the castle, the Baroness says it's just her and Greta. Yeah. You know, doesn't say anything about this guy. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's just. Yeah. And why did he have to delay it anyway? Because the Baroness isn't a vampire yet. Right. I mean, it's kind of, it's like, why couldn't they have just, the Baroness showed up at any time? It's almost like they were trying to, you asked me, I think when we were watching this, is she a vampire right now? Yeah, because I couldn't remember. Because, you know, she comes in at night Uh and they delay the the coach. Yeah. Um, You know, why didn't he just, why didn't he just hang out at the tavern and wait for the coach to get there and say, hey, I'll pay you this if you get lost. Yeah. And then let the Baroness come in and say, oh, I'll take you back any, any time of the day. Didn't have to be that night. Yeah. And, and then she later says that about not having an appetite. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's the usual code for, she's a vampire. So who knows, that might've been some leftover aspect of a previous version of the script or something. According to a historian on the making of Brides of Dracula documentary, which you can find on YouTube, the Man in Black scene may have been a reworked version of one featuring the hero Latour from the first version of the script. So, like we said, there's, there's a bit of unevenness there. We get to fully meet our heroine, Marianne, played by Yvonne Monlar, who Hammer touted as Francis Nua's sex kitten. <laughs> wow. <laughs> She's certainly very pretty, and her accent's, you know, cute so and endearing, so... But I, oddly enough, we don't see. There's not a whole lot of cleavage in this movie. No, I mean, there's really kind of chased for a Hammer movie. I mean, and I know this is early, but in uh, Curse of Frankenstein, uh, Hazel Court had cleavage all over the place. You know, and I mean, and Brides, and I mean, in the original horror of Dracula, it was quite a bit more than there even is here. I notice you have a really good memory for when cleavage is shown. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Ow. Uh, that was just a mild slap that wasn't a real punch so. <laughs> oh I just barely tapped you that's what I said yeah um, she will appear y- Yvonne Monlar will appear later in Hammer's Terror of the Tongs with Christopher Lee uh, where they both have makeup and prosthetics to make them look Asian probably something that wouldn't fly today oh I know <laughs> I was just like oh my gosh I was reading the 
some stuff on IMDb, and you know they taped her eyes back. And yeah, stuff, you know I was just like, oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah, Christopher Lee later pe- played Fu Manchu with pretty much the exact same look because this guy he played was basically a Fu Manchu Jim, ripoff. Yeah. yeah, so she was also in a film before this called Circus of Horror, starring another Hammer regular, Anton Differing, and featuring Donald Pleasance. Most of her work after these hammers was in France and Italy, and she retired from acting in 1969, and she actually passed away just last year. Okay. I do like, we talked about when the man in black walked in, I do like that everybody just walks out. Yes. I mean, it's like, this is all happening again. It's like, this is cold. They for, don't want to be party to it. Yeah, it's just all, they, don't, they, are not, they don't dare try to stop it, though. Right. Because they're spineless, apparently. But, you know, they're... But you don't know what happened before. Maybe they did try and stop it and, you know... That's true, too, yeah. And if they if they took it out on their loved ones, which very possible they did, then would you put your neck out for somebody else? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> your neck, literally. Har, har, har. Sorry. <laughs> Unintentional fun there. I get the impression that the reason the landlords tell Marianne there is no room for her is that they want her out of there for her own safety. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not because they were afraid to get caught up in this any further. I think so. Uh, the landlord's wife actually tells him not to let the bareness in. I, like, yeah. I think that's, you know. Uh, but he's like, I have to. Yeah, like, she's bad business. And, and we know it just from the reaction all the characters have displayed. Uh, the bareness certainly looks like an old vampire here. She's dressed in a black dress. With a black and red cape and black veil. Yes. So, uh, Tony Award-winning actress Martita Hunt, who plays Baroness, had a prestigious career in British stage and film production. She was one of Alec Guinness's acting coaches and told him, you'll never make it as an actor, Mr. Guinness. Oh, my. <laughs> the two remained friends despite this and both appeared in the 1946 adaptation of Dickens' Great Expectations which was Guinness's first film role and one for which she received rave reviews and notice from Hollywood. Yeah, I think he turned out okay. Yeah, yeah I, all these Obi-Wan action figures tell me that he did. Even though he didn't give it any credence. <laughs> no, you know? not really, but we, obviously as an actor, he's made a pretty big impact. Right. <laughs> There's a funny story about her on that Making of Brides of Dracula documentary that I won't go into here. It involves one of the crew members reminiscing about finding her in her knickers in a yoga trance in her room. I'll just leave it at that. Go find it on YouTube. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a little... I think it's a it, it's kind of a cute story, but it's a little mean-spirited, honestly, so I don't, I don't really want to repeat it, but it is it is kind of funny. And it's, it's, the, guy's, it's the guy's story, so I'm not going to tell it, so... Uh, there's some nice direction and acting with the landlords. They're constantly giving each other looks like, oh, crap, what can we do? Right. I really like that. Uh, th- you know, during this whole sequence, their body language is very apprehensive. So, Castle Meinster is gorgeous, uh, just like Bernard Robinson did with the horror of Dracula. The old creepy castle isn't worn down and ready for the wrecking ball. It's very ornate. Very lavish. It's lavish. very posh. Yes, it it's is. It's very posh. And it's very posh, but it's also cold and foreboding and it it looks very you know even though it's it's beautiful it's it's cavernous and huge and it casts lots of weird big shadows and, and it's got those huge gargoyles on the staircase and they were actually sculpted and designed by uh, Bernard Robinson's wife Margaret 
This movie looks like a million bucks, but it was, of course, fairly low budget because right. it was a Hammer movie. Exactly. Uh, they excelled at making their productions look like something out of one of the major Hollywood studios at a fraction of the cost. So they really were really proficient at that. We meet Greta here, who is quite the complex character as we get to know her through the film. Just a smidge. <laughs> Frida Jackson also had a long film career, mostly British, but also starred with Hunt and Great Expectations and went on after this to appear and hammers the shadow of the cat, and played a witch in both the Valley of Guanji and the original Clash of the Titans, which was her last role. Hmm. So there you go. So Marianne sees the Baron, and it doesn't take long for the Baroness to come clean, at least in part. What do you think about her tale about her son? I mean, she's not really lying, you know? I mean, yeah. when she, she just basically leaves out the he's a vampire part. Yeah. You know, she says he's sick. Uh, she says he's brought shame onto this family and, you know, I mean, she doesn't, you know, really leave out. She kind of leaves out that she encouraged his wickedness at this point. But, uh, I thought that was interesting because if you watch it, it's like nothing she says is really wrong. It's just, you know, it's not a... a, Well, like my grandma always used to say, just don't tell it all. Right, right. It's like, uh, in Star Trek VI, a lie an omission, or whatever it yeah. was. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> like, like we said before, this you could imagine the Baroness is the vampire, right? But you know, we'll soon learn different. She points out the door to what his way. What the heck? I mean, like here, here is this thing that you're not allowed to go in, but here it is, right here. This is where I don't want you to go. Right here, here it is. Well, don't you think her plan was for her to go to him and him just to bite her and get his get his meal in? I mean, that's basically what it was. Because why else bring her there? The, the 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 problem entered into it when she took him the key. You know, because, I mean, why else would she say, there he is over there? I mean, ah. because they're not going to let him loose. Right. I mean, they're, they lose their crap when he gets loose. So my my theory is this happens, the way I took it is this, this is the way it always happens. They, they act like, okay, there's, they let the person discover the sun. And then that person feels bad. The girl feels bad for him. Uh-huh. And at some point she goes to him and then he bites her and, you know, feeds on her. And then they, I don't know what they do with the, the body because they come back as a vampire. But maybe that's why they're calling Van Helsing in. Maybe there's these errant girl vampires running around everywhere that's, you know, coming from Castle Minster. They don't really tell you all this, but you can kind of infer. infer yeah. 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 The Baron isn't really lying either. I mean, he tells, what he tells her is true. The Baroness has taken the lands that are rightfully his. She's locked him up. She's spread that he was either mad or dead. And he's neither. Well, no. I guess he's undead. Well, yeah. But he, you know, he too left out that all-important detail, you know, that he's a vampire. And it's no wonder Marianne says, I don't know what to believe, you know. Yeah. So, uh, the Baron is played by David Peel, and I think he's really good in this part. He's a bit of Frank Langella 20 years before, you know. He's got that romantic leading man vampire thing going on about him. You know, at first you do feel some amount of sympathy for him. At first, very first. first, That very first, yeah. Peel had a pretty long career as a character actor up to this point, appearing in a lot of British TV productions. Universal, who distributed the film in the U.S., played up the young, handsome angle, but he was actually 40 years old in this film. He was also much shorter than he appeared using lifts in his shoes. She's right. Yeah, they like they like basically always tried to like, you know, teen idol thing. They had to they had to wait another like 
six, seven years for a 40-year-old man to really become a teen idol playing a vampire, and that would be Barnabas, Jonathan Fred. <laughs> like, and then he got replaced by David Selby as Quentin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know, more Dark Shadows, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> notice I, my eyes just glazed over at that point. <laughs> I, I, guys, I mean, <laughs> I tell you, every night, at least five out of seven nights a week, he sits there and watches at least two, maybe three episodes of Dark Shadows. I'm, I'm on episode, I'm getting close to episode 900, and there's like, I've only got about 300 more to go. <laughs> Holy. <laughs> uh, for some reason, David Peel's actually pretty far down the credit list. Did you notice that? I hadn't. I'll be honest. He's right alongside cameo appearances by Michael Ripper and the other bit players, which is a shame. I mean, it's like he was really good in this, I thought. He retired from acting shortly after this and started a lucrative career as a fine arts dealer. Oh, well, there you go. Good, good. for him. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's discuss Marianne a bit. I, I know you've got to have some opinions on this. Uh, <laughs> what do you think about how easily she's swayed by the Baron here? I mean, the the whole fact that she's like, here, let me, you know, let me marry you, even though your mother died under mysterious circumstances. Well, let's not go there quite yet. Oh, but it's... Uh, I know, I know, I know. Well, let, 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 let's let's dial it back to when she first meets him. Okay. Okay, because, we, we, you know, we're going to go through the movie. So, uh, so do you think that he could have a slight hypnotic influence over her through the rest of this movie? Almost, it would explain a lot. Well, but I almost wonder about... You think about Gina. She was, you know... Oh, I wish it was me getting to be, you know, having a baron and having the lands and da 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 da. And maybe, you know, Marianne's kind of like that too. She's looking to get married and, you know, here's a baron and he's got some money. Let's, you know, let's get the show on the road here, folks. You think it's more of the princess fairy tale? Yeah, one pulled one. into that so easily. Yeah, it, it could be. I, I, I kind of, from 2018 perspective, I want her to be hypnotized slightly but i but at this time frame i don't think so i i i want her to though because otherwise <laughs> i've got some problems with her character oh i know uh, they That's don't true. telegraph any hypnosis like they will in just a few minutes with the mother but he so easily like does hypnotize his mother yeah that it makes me think okay maybe he's doing some low level where she's like got free will still but she's just gonna kind of for him, she's just going to go along with whatever he says. Mm. I don't know. Uh, yeah. She's extremely naive, if otherwise. Yeah. yeah. What if the Baron really was mad, insane, and she's going to release a murderous maniac just because he's handsome and well-spoken? You know, I, you know, I don't know. She wants to get laid. <laughs> but she can't until they're married. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's really willing to risk a lot, though, to save this guy because he might be a real sicko. And she's like, like crawling out on the ledge. With, it's hard to tell how high up it is in this castle. Yeah, this little bitty. It's at least edge. on the second floor. Yeah. I mean, it's like dang. And there's probably like a moat down there and everything else. Uh, when the Baron calls to his mother, Peel's voice is just dripping with evil intent. He's like, Oh yeah, mother. You know, it's just like it's just like come here, mother. And you can tell she's like, I don't want to go, but I gotta. She's like, No, my son. Yeah, 
there's some interesting Oedipal subtext going on here since we usually can see the vampire's control over his victims as a seductive act. Yeah. And it adds to the unnerving creepiness of it all. It's kind of like, ugh. And Van Helsing even later says, you've taken the blood of your own mother. Yeah. It's like, you sick bastard. You know, but, you know, and there's, there's a little more than just, you're a vampire. It's like, dude, you crossed the line even for a vampire. Yeah. When the way he says that, you know, it's like, ugh. Now she's clearly hypnotized as she approaches, somewhat resistant, but she's unable to move away, and he barely looked at her. So, I, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's true, but I'm, I'm kind of that. I'm making it in my head canon, so Marianne's not a complete and total just airhead. Okay, basically what it amounts to. Okay, uh, I, I can't help it, but the 1951 downplaced guys, Scott Morris in particular, who also hosts Disney Indiana. Uh, co-hosted with his wife Tracy. They kind of ruined Greta's freak out a bit because <laughs> Scott equated her hysterical screaming and laughing to Daffy Duck. And now I can't unhear it. Oh. <laughs> Think about it when he's like, Oh, dude. <laughs> and now neither can any of you. Oh. <laughs> you can't get over it. Oh. Christopher. The uh, blame Scott Morris, not me. Uh, she's yeah, cert- Scott Morris. Yeah. <laughs> she's. Uh, Frida Jackson certainly giving in her all. She's not holding anything back. It makes you wonder how much uh, Greta was under his control, the Baron's control at this point, because later she's clearly a willing servant. Right, right. To him, so, you know, it's like he... But he does, He is going to come back. We do know that. Well, and I think, too, it was easier for him to control the people that were closest to him because, you know, that's his old nurse. That's obviously his mother, and I think that's one of the reasons, you know, you've got that connection there. Well, that's true. So touching on what you went to before... So Marianne thinks Greta killed the Baroness, or at least hurt her, because later she seems surprised that she's dead. You know, later when he comes in and says, you know, his mother had died, and she's like, oh, you know. I know. What did she think she was? She said she was dead. Now, she didn't necessarily have to believe her, because she was Stark Raven Looney at the time. But, you know, why did she absolve the Baron of this in her mind? Right. You know, I mean, that, you know, I know Greta was cackling like a nut, but she went off with her son, the Baroness clearly went off with her son against her will, right. and now she's dead. She either has to be somewhat, again, she has to either be somewhat hypnotized or this chick is just dense. Uh-huh. I mean, it's just... <laughs> Greta's talk with the dead Baroness is very intriguing. I mean, you kind of get a picture of how things were, you know. Don't blame me, mistress. It was none of my doing. No. I've always kept faith with you. Twenty years since I first saw you come to the castle here with the old Baron and your little son. <laughs> a fine, handsome little imp he was, too. But you spoiled him. Oh, yes. He was always self-willed and cruel, and you encouraged him. Aye, and a bad company he kept, too. You used to sit and drink with him, didn't you? Yes, and you laughed at their wicked games, till in the end one of them took him and made him what he is. Well, you've done what you could for him since then. God help you. 
keeping him here a prisoner, bringing these young girls to him, keeping them alive with their blood. But the powers of darkness are too strong. They've beaten you. He's free. He'll come back here. That's certain. Oh. <laughs> oh, he'll come back to his old Greta. He'll come. <laughs> He's got to come back here before cockcrow. She makes you wonder just who the Baron got mixed up with. Uh-huh. You know, uh, since this is a Hammer film, probably some occultists who actually called a vampire into their midst, who bit the Count, and his mom was just cheerleading all of this on until he died and came back. I think it was a case, and we see this all the time in today's society, you have a parent that doesn't want a parent. They want a buddy to hang out with. Yeah. And this came back and literally bit her in the ass. Yeah, her in the and neck. neck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good I point. I mean, but I think that's what happened there. They're like... Yeah, we know some parents like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you can be their friend later when they get uh, get grown up. Well, I, I mean, I, I've told this to both of our kids and so have you, you know. My job isn't to be your friend right now. I said, quite frankly, there's going to be times that you don't like me. And I said, if you don't like me at some times, that means I'm doing my job. That's right. Yeah. If you like me all the time, I'm not doing my job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I assume the Baron came back the morning Van Helsing found Marianne in the woods. And if she wasn't in his thrall before, Greta, then he took care of it then. Right. Speaking of which, I wonder how many women were found either... Unconscious or dead in Black Park in these Hammer films. There's, I don't know. We should, one behind every tree. <laughs> just, do, 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 do. just roll this. Let's roll this one out. Yes. I think I'll go to Black Park. Why? I'm looking for a buxom woman with a cleavage sticking out. Ah, there you go. That's the best place to find them. Cool. <laughs> Uh, 31 minutes into an hour and 26 minute film and we finally meet our hero Peter Cushing's Van Helsing. Woohoo! Woo! I don't think we need to say much about Cushing here. We've, we featured him in every House of Frankenstein season we've done. He's a legend in the genre and of course has some cred among geeks and filmgoers. As the guy who bossed the screen's greatest villain around in some science fantasy film you may have heard of. Yeah. Equally adept at playing evil and good, his Van Helsing is the man at his most virtuous. And uh, I just wonder, I don't know if I've ever brought this up on House of Franklinstein. I think I brought this up on a podcast Rob and I did together. Oh, it was the Superman movie minute where we talked about the Topps cards, the gum cards. Oh. Because I have a lunchbox that originally belonged to my sister. It was a Snoopy, it's a Snoopy and Woodstock plastic lunchbox from the 70s, which was unusual because most lunchboxes in the 70s were still metal. But I have had that since I was a little kid. And for whatever reason... I put a sticker on that box from a pack of Star Wars cards. It was a huge headshot of Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin. Okay. It's been on that lunchbox ever since then, and I've got that lunchbox in the collectibles room full of color form pieces now. (laughs) And there's Peter Cushing. Little did I know when I was a little kid that I think Peter Cushing was the bee's knees at one of these days, you know, and one of my favorites. So there you go. Uh, it's a nice touch to have the landlords relieved to see Marianne alive. It brings the first part of the film full circle now that the hero has arrived. It's kind of like the first part of the movie is like the prologue. Right. It's a pre-Van Helsing prologue. Village Girl, which is the only name they give her, Marie Devereaux, told her co-star Andre Melly she was cast 
Because I have big boobs and they like to show them on the poster. Oh, gosh. This is according to the Hammer book I got. You see surprisingly little of her cleavage in this one, as we said. When she's lying in the coffin is about the most you see, which, again, is surprising because, again, this is a Hammer movie. But she did say that's why she was cast in the movie. Right. Uh, Devereaux was mostly a bit player in her Hammer roles, going uncredited in The Stranglers of Bombay and The Pirates of Blood River. She did appear in an episode of The Avengers. Okay. Uh, I like Van Helsing's reaction to the landlord telling him about the garlic flowers and local superstitions. He's like, there's usually a good reason for all of these old customs. He's underplaying that, but he's still saying, probably a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) You know, not saying, well, let me tell you, buddy, (laughs) I've seen some serious shit. (laughs) As Winston said in Ghostbusters, I've seen shit that'll turn you white. Oh, gosh. When the landlord's wife questions her about her night and the Baron still being alive, Marianne's only answer is, it's such a long story. Maybe she's just a pretty airhead after all. And she's going to go be a teacher. (laughs) Think about that. (laughs) I weep for the future. (laughs) Her conversation with Van Helsing about the cult of the undead is pretty casual on her part. I mean, now I can see him being casual about it because that's his style doesn't want to alarm people, you know. But, you know, he deals with it every day, so it's just a matter of fact to him. But shouldn't she be more freaked out about all of this and questioning what it has to do with the Baron? Right. You know, I mean, she's like, and will it spread? That's like saying, oh, do you know there's a stomach virus going on in the school system? Well, will it spread? You know, it's like, it's a stomach virus. This is freaking vampirism. Yeah. There is a moment of don't worry your pretty little head about it here when Van Helsing asks her to tell him everything, then forget it as if it never happened. Uh, you know, it's a bit patronizing, but... I think, but to my notion, though, he, you know, he thinks that it's over for her, and mm. she's just like, you know, he's going to put her safely in the school. He thinks her part's over. Yeah. He's got it handled. You know, he doesn't realize that this is coming back. I think I don't think it's... Pay- patronizing at all i think it's more you know okay you're off i've got you safe okay well so since yeah okay well that that's good then i don't want to feel bad about van helsing in any way so that's good uh mona washburn who plays the sweetly mannered frau lang is probably best remembered as henry higgins maid in my fair mm-hmm. lady with your favorite audrey hepburn yes yes uh hair hair lang cracks me up He's an old, stuffy authoritarian until he meets someone whose ass he can kiss like Van Helsing. It's almost as if he's like, don't you know who I am? I'm Peter Cushing. And the guy just rolls over. You know? Yeah, it's just like, yeah. <laughs> well, but most people are like that. You know, people that are like, oh, this is who I am. And then they meet somebody that they think either they either are or they at least think they are above them just even a little bit. And they're like, oh, here, let me kiss your butt for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Got a little brown on your nose there? (laughs) Henry Oscar, who uh, plays Hare Lang, was a friend of Cushing's, so he helped to get him the part. He later appeared with him in an episode of his Sherlock Holmes TV series later in the 60s. Father Stepnik, who is called the curé in the credits, isn't exactly great at breaking bad news to one of his parish, is he? (laughs) Oh, it's just like... (laughs) And just what exactly is he going to do to prevent the girl from rising? We later learn he doesn't know much about vampires, just enough to call him Van Helsing. You know, uh, now's a good time to mention the music of Malcolm Williamson, 
The opening theme is in keeping with James Bernard's usual bombastic dirge-like music for Hammer, but Williamson goes a bit over the top with the quiet moments at times, like when the father is relieved that Van Helsing has answered his call. It may be a bit too Christ-like or something like that. It sounds like it's one of the from the like the '50s, '60s Bible epics, mm. like you know Jeffrey Hunter and King of Kings or something. In a couple times, uh, it works later for a very important moment in the film, though. So. But here it's a little like when he says, thank God you've come, thank God. It's like, you know, it's like, hallelujah, you know, yeah. just in the background music. Uh, Williamson went on to score Hammer's Crescendo and The Horror of Frankenstein, as well as many other British film and TV projects. Now, Fred Johnson, who played the father, was in The Curse of Frankenstein as the grandpa the creature kills. Oh, okay. And also appeared, along with another actor we'll get to later, and my favorite version of A Christmas Carol, the 1951 version starring Alistair Sim. He was one of the guys that came to Scrooge to, to get the money, you know, to, uh, for the poor. And, oh, well, you yeah, know, yeah. A bit of food and drink, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah, those, those guys. He was one of those guys. In the first Dracula film, Van Helsing goes over proper vampire fighting by recording it onto a phonograph. Here he has the father to talk to, so he just can, it's just clear exposition. Yeah. yeah. Also, in the last film, he discounted vampires becoming bats as myth, but here it's part of the lore, so it's an interesting change to make given the huge success of the first film. Yeah, it makes you wonder what happened there. Yeah, it's like, why did they, they just forget that they made that rule last time? So, uh, so you asked this, why didn't Van Helsing go out earlier? Yes! <laughs> why, 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 why did he wait? I mean, why wait? Why not go ahead and... Stake her while she's inanimate. Yeah, you know? he does the same thing for the Baroness later. I know. Well, I mean, he waits for the sun to rise. Yeah. So that way she's. I mean, she he she, waits then. So she sleep. Yeah. But not for. No, I know that's what I'm saying. He yeah. he he waits. He waits for her to go into her slumber. Yeah. Her vampire daytime slumber, and you know it would have been a lot more peaceful for this girl to get staked while she was good and asleep. Yeah. Than to rather you know wait for her to rise, but. It's kind of weird. Did he stay at the school too long? I don't know. Ah. The scene of Greta coaching the village girl from her grave is actually pretty disturbing if you think about it, though. It's creepy. Yeah. yeah it's, it's good and creepy. Clearly, Greta has now lost it if she ever had it. And when a girl comes out of the grave, her face is really pale, most so, more so than the rest of her body, which is a bit distracting, but she's like some mindless drone or something. I just think they messed up on the makeup. Like they just went too far with the white on her uh-huh. face. I yeah. think they got in a hurry that day and didn't worry about. They didn't blend. You must blend. <laughs> blend. <laughs> now it sounds like Edward Scissorhands. You're like uh, the mom yeah. at Edward Scissorhands. Just blend. <laughs> blend. Didn't blend well. Let's not. We're a little ahead of ourselves with Johnny Depp in this movie. Okay. Oh, sorry. That's let's hold that hold that thought. Uh, apparently, the bat was the second bat made for the film, a backup bat, just in case something happened to the good one. Well, something did. It somehow got lost, and so this one was used. I don't think it's too bad. I've seen worse. Maybe it's not quite as good as the one we just talked about earlier this year in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, but it's close. And Hammer would have a much worse bat effect in Kiss of the Vampire four years later, which we spoke of. Those bats are from Woolworths. They're just rubber bats. <laughs> it's, it's pretty bad. It's 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 like the ones on Dark Shadows. <laughs> Dark Shadows was filmed on a tight schedule every day. They didn't have time to get special effects just right. So 
They've gotten a lot better on the the current ones. I know y'all can't see this, but I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah, but what did you, you come in and I said, well, did Barnabas, has he ever shown up again? Where's, has he come back yet? When when the person that you spend every day of your life with (laughs) is constantly obsessed with something, you kind of want to know what they're doing. Well, you you do seem interested, I'm just saying. For some reason, Van Helsing has the initials JVH on his bag. Is his first name supposed to be John? I don't recall his name being said in the first film, but Stoker gave the character the first name of Abraham. Right. Hammer never could seem to get his first name straight. When the character reappears in Flashback in Dracula AD 1972 and Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, he has a different first name in each, I believe. And I assume he's meant to be the same character. Well, he might have just got some luggage on the cheap, you know. That's close enough. It's got the, you know. Maybe it's his dad luggage. Maybe yeah. his dad was JVH. Yeah, there, see, there you yeah. go. His dad handed him down his luggage, his, his medical bag. See, see yeah. perfect. Maybe his dad was a doctor. John, John, James, you know. Yeah, James, John, yeah. The interactions between Van Helsing and the Baroness are very interesting, and they're quite different from just about any vampire encounter up to this point on film that I know of. She hides her fangs in shame behind her veil. She's clearly not buying into this existence, unlike the others. And she even hides behind Van Helsing yes. while he has his crucifix on the on her son. When, yeah. You know, I thought that was interesting. She, like, hides behind him. So it's like, I guess, I mean, it's still a cross. It's like, she, but she gets, I, mean, I guess they're in between each other. But I don't know about him. I'd be kind of worried she wouldn't bite me from behind or something. Well, yeah. Yeah. Peel has the bloodshot contacts like Lee had in the first film. I believe the fangs are bigger here, though. And apparently Peel managed to swallow one, which was a common occurrence oh, in these Hammer films. <laughs> I can't remember which. There was one movie where one of the actresses, and we, it might have been in Horror Dracula. It was. It, I don't know if it's one we covered or not. But one of the actresses swallowed a fang. And they had to like use like Alka Seltzer or something to try to get it to come up, or bicarbonate soda or something uh-huh. to get it to come come back up. <laughs> uh, the brief tussle between Van Helsing and the Baron is reminiscent of Lee and Cushing's epic battle at the end of the first film, but it's very brief because you can't top that ending, so they don't even try. Right. Yeah. Uh, like I said, he has taken the blood of his own mother, and this seems to really rankle. Van Helsing's feathers even beyond the usual vampire nastiness. And the Baroness confirms what Greta said about her encouraging the Baron's wickedness, which makes you wonder what awful and kinky stuff she was into before. She laments she's going to have to do whatever hideous thing he asked me to, so she still has no true free will. Right. So, I mean, I thought that that the exchanges between, like I said, Van Helsing and the... It was kind of like the original interview with the vampire. (laughs) Something. Uh, okay, here's where Marianne comes across as either a real ditz here? or someone just here, really, just here, <laughs> or someone under hypnotic control. Like you know, I just just had a thought. You know, the Baron comes in and tells tells you know uh, Frau Lang that his mother has died, and Marianne seems shocked. Yeah. So maybe you know, maybe if he didn't hypnotize her, maybe Van Helsing low level hypnotized her and just forgetting everything. Honey, <laughs> you're just wanting this poor woman not to be a ditz, and she is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the interaction between the Baron and Herr Lang is hilarious. He threatens to throw him out on his head and calls him a young jackass before the Baron reveals who he is. 
Then he zings him with the low rent line. I love that. It was awesome. <laughs> Even though he's a nasty monster, you have to admire that the Baron still has a sense of humor. Yep. He's enjoying winding Lang up and then just sticking it to him, which, you know, he's, he's I like that. That's pretty nice. That's a little bit of like, Lugosi was a little bit like that as Dracula, you know. He's like, for one who hasn't only, who's only lived one lifetime, you're a wise man, Van Helsing. You know, that type of thing. <laughs> uh, as we said, Gina isn't hiding her jealousy very well, is she? No. She wants to be a baroness. Yes. I wish it was me, you bitch. <laughs> I hate you. If I could get away with it, I'd claw your eyes out right now. <laughs> That's basically what she's saying. Uh, now, there's no reflection in these mirrors. Unlike Lugosi in our first film this year. So right. They, they did pay attention to that. I hope we're saying this actress's name right. Andre Meli. Meli. We keep saying Meli. Uh, A-N-D-R-E-E-M-E-L-L-Y. Yeah. Meli. Meli. She did some other horror work, such as the film The Horror of It All, starring Pat Boone. Okay. Yes. She was immortalized in the classic set of Milton Bradley's Monster Old Maid cards from 1964. Since this film was distributed by Universal, she gets to appear alongside the classic Universal monsters along with Oliver Reed's Leon, who is mistakenly called Wolfman, while Lon Chaney Jr. is simply called the Werewolf, and most surprisingly, Henry Hull is Teenage Werewolf, even though he was like middle-aged in that film. Uh, and that wasn't even a Universal film, Teenage Werewolf, with Michael Landon, so... Um, Melly's character is all mixed up as well because she's called Dracula's daughter with a photo from her vampiric state later. They just movie. don't even know. They don't even know. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the pictures are great. It's a great little set of cards. I've seen pictures of it, but yeah, it's crazy wrong all over the place. I like that Fisher takes the time to show Van Helsing at his solemn work. He's dispatching the Baroness. The conviction on Van Helsing's face says a lot about the character. Although it always seems they are staking these women in their lower intestines, not their hearts. Yep. I mean, it's like, dude, do you know where the heart's at? <laughs> Aim for the boob. You know, it's like... <laughs> and from that solemn moment with its heavy organ music, we have a comedy relief bit to break it up, to break up the tension. And who better to do it with than mumbling comedy relief actor Miles Malson? He was in the horror of Dracula as the Undertaker and appeared with Cushing and Lee again in Hammer's The Hound of the Baskervilles. But to me, he'll always be Old Joe, the pawnbroker, in that 1951 A Christmas Carol I mentioned earlier. Yes. Come into the Paula. Come into the Paula. Now that guy. Uh, in the Hammer story by Marcus Hearn and Alan Barnes, which is the Hammer book I mentioned earlier, the usually stoic Christopher Lee is quoted as saying, It was very difficult not to laugh when acting with Miles Mallison. Extraordinary, clever comedian. So, what I, better praise? Yeah, I'm not going to try to talk like Christopher Lee when I say no, that. No, no. Uh, Tobler has no problem taking Van Helsing's fee, and Van Helsing doesn't even care. No. He's just concerned the victim might be Marianne, I think. Yeah. Uh, Cushing calls the bite the seal of Dracula, which is the one time the count is name dropped in the film beyond the initial narration. So, there's your Dracula name dropping in the movie. So, why doesn't Van Helsing just tell the Langs? What's going on? I mean, is he afraid they just won't believe him and then won't do anything to help him? And really, why does he even leave? Right. Where does Where'd he, he go? Where does he go? Oh, yeah. What's he preparing for? The answer is so Marianne can be there by herself when Gina rises. That's the real answer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> it's in the script. It's in the script. 
And I guess he just can't break it to Marianne about her fiancé since she actually loves him. Or thinks she does. But still, I think that may have been a tactical error on Van Helsing's part. Uh-huh. Yeah, he should have went ahead and told her. Uh, the scene in the stable really shines on what made Hammer work. Characters like Severin, who isn't even in the credits, is fleshed out and we feel we know him and his type of character. Add in the horses who won't stand still due to sensing the corpse, and you have quite a picture painted of this world that we're viewing. I really like that scene. Uh, the lock falling off is still locked. That's a creepy touch. Uh, makes you wonder why it was locked to begin with, though. Was was this an additional order from Van Helsing, or did they just lock coffins back then? <laughs> Probably where she had fever to just avoid temptation mm. to look at it. Oh, okay. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you know, you tell somebody not to do something, that's the one thing they're going to do. Just go in there and poke it with a stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor Severin gets it from the Baron in bat form. And was he just flying by, or did his proximity cause Gina to rise when she did? Because think about it. He was flying by when the girl rose. Yeah. And he was flying by when Gina rose. Maybe he has to fly by and say, look up. It's, it's a bat alarm. <laughs> I used to have a bat alarm, talking Batman or Robin alarm clock. I still got it. It just doesn't work. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then we get our first hint of lesbianism in a Hammer vampire film, which they will make into a cottage industry by the early 70s, <laughs> which we covered in The Vampire Lovers uh-huh. and Twins of Evil, although there's not as much in Twins of Evil, mostly Vampire Lovers. Melly is quite creepy as a vampire, but is it wrong to f- that I find her more attractive this way? Yes. She looks hotter as a vampire. <laughs> Maybe it's her hair. I don't know. <laughs> what? <laughs> don't look at me like that. <laughs> she says, <He's> weird. <laughs> she says, say you forgive me for letting him love me. If that doesn't just say vampire bite equals sexual act, I don't know what does. So <laughs> then she pitches a polyamorous relationship or a vampire three way, if you will, maybe four way with the village girl. So <laughs> we can all have him. Yeah, it's like... I'm sorry, but I ain't sharing. They're going to move to Utah or something. I don't know. (laughs) Van Helsing finally tells Marianne what's going on, and he actually raises his voice a bit, demanding she tell him where her fiancé is. And he told you to keep that rosary on! Exactly. (laughs) And what is it about a windmill that says horror movie climax? I mean, I think it's because Frankenstein did it first, and if you're going to copy a movie... Why not go with the best? We'll have another such climax in our next episode. And of course, the windmill set looks great. Totally lived in, worked in for what seems like 100 years or more. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's really nicely done. Yeah. It's a nice bit that Greta tries to disarm Van Helsing of his cross so the brides can get him. I mean, that's one of the advantages of having a human uh, servant that's not a vampire, you know. Right. Of course, she makes the mistake of trying to grab onto one of the hanging curtains and then falls to her death. Makes you wonder why didn't he um, bite Greta? Well, so he could have somebody to watch over their bodies and everything. But why didn't he? Why did he bite his mother? Because he wanted to punish his mother, and he didn't want to punish Greta because Greta actually still took care of him. Mm. Okay, that'd be my guess. You know, Greta was just under orders from his mother. She still she still cared for him and took care of him. So. The Baron is ready to rumble. He's swinging a chain, man, when he comes yeah. in. He's, <laughs> it's like West Side Story. Story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just like with Dracula, Van Helsing isn't afraid to mix it up with a supernatural creature. He actually 
kicks the Baron and then tackles him. I know. It's like, he's in it, man. Peter Cushing gets choked in these films, and every time he sticks out his tongue and crosses his eyes, it's knowing his acting method, he probably asked an expert, a doctor or something, and found out that that's what you would do if somebody yeah. choked you. But I will admit, as much as I love Peter Cushing, it is a bit goofy looking when he does it every time. True. But it's fun to watch for him either way, though, so... The first time I watched this and the Baron actually bit Van Helsing, I was like, holy shit! It's, it's quite, I know, that he actually did it. And you're like, what? What? It's quite shocking. I mean, it really is. And Cushing plays his realization of what happened very uh, so very well. I mean, he's, he's horrified, and there's this look of panic on his face, but he instantly starts darting his eyes around and looking around the room, trying to figure out what he can do. Yeah. He knows he's got to act very quickly. And Chekhov's holy water canteen is about to go off. Because, you know, the father gave it to him earlier. And and if that, there's probably a different name for that, but I'm not Catholic, so I don't know what you call it. So I call right. it a canteen. Again, I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but Marianne is either just a ditz when she takes off her rosary. Or maybe the Baron, who is outside as a bat, is somehow commanding her to take it off when he's not in proximity to her. <laughs> She's just a ditz, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying to defend the female character here. I know, but sometimes they're just dingbats. (laughs) You know. Sometimes you can't help how the character's written. Okay. Then we have the most badass scene in all of horror. Van Helsing cauterizes his vampire bite with a freaking branding iron. I mean, oh. (laughs) God sake. Then cools it off with a dash of holy water. Suck that, Hugh Jackman. I mean, this is freaking Van Helsing. <laughs> God, that movie's horrible. Had such potential, but God, it's so horrible. Uh, we'll never cover that on House of Frankenstein. Let me put it to you that way. We, Williamson's holy theme for Van Helsing really works here. It builds and builds until he puts the iron to his neck, and then again when he puts on the holy water. Uh-huh. You know, just like a little dash of cold, holy water in the morning just to <laughs> clear off the vampire. Just a little bit. It's a little aqua velva. Yeah. <laughs> just a sprinkle away keeps the bat away. Have you had your sprinkle today? <laughs> nice. <laughs> but why are the brides just standing around watching and hissing? Why not go down and revamp him? Yeah, I mean. Revamp him. <laughs> I'm getting punchy. Uh-huh. Uh, I would bet money it was Peter Cushing's idea to make the sign of the cross with the holy water. I, I bet you that wasn't in the script. I bet you that was him. Because that that's, sounds like the type of thing he'd do. So. Uh, Roy Ashton's burn makeup on the Baron is really quite not quite nice. And it's not too far off what he'd do for Hammer's The Phantom of the Opera a few years later. Okay. Is it just me or does the screaming, wheezing sound that the Baron Meister makes... Sound close to the classic TARDIS sound effect. You you said that, and I, I listened for it this time, and I'm like, okay. I think it does. It's very much like, <laughs> just like it's. <laughs> you sound like a dying elephant. <laughs> Uh, then Van Helsing goes for the badass trifecta and turns a windmill into a giant cross. Now that's clever for both the character and the movie. I always go with the fact that 
And I mean, I've, I, they said this in a movie before. Maybe I read it in a book. But to me, I accept this as vampire canon. To me, you can make anything into a cross. Like when you have somebody that actually believes can take any two pieces and... Like Van Helsing did in the first movie with the candlesticks. With the candlesticks, because he actually has faith. But if you have somebody that doesn't have faith, they can actually have a cross blessed by the Pope and it ain't going to work. Right, yeah. Because they don't have the faith to back it up. Right, exactly. Yeah, and there was another movie where... uh, I forgot where it was, but... Or a book where a Jewish character used the Star of David against a vampire and it worked. So that's yeah. cool. Yeah, so it's I, I thought that was cool. So it's like any like religious religious art. good artifact that, that that is supposed to represent represent goodness. You believe in it, it'll work against uh, a vampire. So I, th- I think that's cool. Yeah. Uh, so did the cross kill him, or was it a combo of that and the holy water? Normally, a cross will just hold a vampire at bay or repel him, but it doesn't usually actually harm them. Right. So, but maybe this one's just being so huge with just too much for him to bear. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. And because he, you know, he was also suffering from the holy water. I mean, it just, you yeah. know, I don't know. Yeah, Cushing leaps off the balcony of the windmill about two stories up, and that's clearly him there. Yeah. And he did as much stunts as he could, and it greatly adds to the film and to the character of Van Helsing. Uh, like most Hammer and Universal films, there is no coda. It ends with our heroes watching the windmill burn. We don't know what becomes of Marianne later. As you pointed out, you could interpret their embrace as either friendly, romantic, or even fatherly. Right. So, if it is romantic, maybe she's where all these later Van Helsings come from. Maybe that's why some of them are pretty stupid, you know. <laughs> it comes from that side of the gene pool. Maybe that's why uh, Van Helsing's great-great-great-great-granddaughter... Uh, Hangs out with Johnny Alucard. Yes, and that's where I was going. See, Thank you remember you. Dracula AD 1972, even though you don't want to. I know. <laughs> I was try- sitting here trying to think, what is her stupid we've, name? We've got to actress. cover that. It's Stephanie Beecham. That's okay. Yeah, we've we've got to cover that movie. We just we've talked about it so much. We got to cover it. It sucks so much ass. It does not. It does. Oh my gosh! It's got Caroline Monroe in it. That alone is worth watching. You just like it because of the tits. <laughs> What you turning red for? Because I'm right. <laughs> oh, you can tell it's later than usual. And after a very long week. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Shoot. Uh, a lot of people consider this Hammer's best horror film. And I agree it's up at the top. It really is a perfect slice of this type of story. You're completely sucked into this environment. And it does have that dark fairy tale feel that uh, Terrence Fisher was famous for. What he always said he was sh- going for. Was this, you know, uh, he didn't call them horror films. He, he, he called them something else, and then he talked about them being like dark fairy tales. There's a bit more actual romance in this gothic romance than many other Hammer films, since the Baron is genuinely appealing. No I mean, pun intended. He's good looking, you know. Yeah, no pun intended, David Peel appealing. Uh, uh, unlike the intense animalistic Dracula that Christopher Lee perfected. Right. And despite his Dracula being my favorite, I don't actually miss Christopher Lee at all in this movie. No, I mean, it's just, you know, it's like it's in the same universe, right. you know, obviously, and this is just a tale that does not have Dracula in it. Right. You know? It was hugely successful for Hammer and Universal, and I have never understood why Van Helsing didn't get a separate series of films after this. 
it's just money they left on the table, in my opinion. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't think Peter Cushing would have t- ever turned it down. He because he played in some later ones. He probably should have turned it down, like Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. <laughs> Although I like that one for its own. But I know we ain't going to cover that one. <laughs> no, I, I purposely every time you watch it, stupid thing. I purposely put myself to sleep <laughs> as quickly as possible. Uh, Horror of Dracula is my favorite Dracula film and one of my favorite films, period. So I can't put this one above it, but it's damn close. It really is. So if you have never seen this one, I recommend you go check it out. We'll take a quick break and then we'll return with a super heroic horror tale, but not from a comic this time. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Hammer? Wasn't that an 80s cop show on ABC with David Raish? This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Wait, that was Sledgehammer. 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. A fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter, Batman, Doctor Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mister Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, 
and many, many more. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Okay, we dared to sneak into the House of Frankenstein's theater room. Why would they have a theater room? But anyway, and grabbed a haunted, D- a haunted DVD. I wrote it because the comic crypt was guarded by an army of zombie muskrats. Really? Muskrats? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Muskrat Sally, muskrat Sally. Oh my God, you're punchy. <laughs> Today we're going to discuss an animated Justice League adventure. No, we're not sneaking a JLU cast in here. We're not even going back to the Super Friends well. No, this time we're talking about an episode of another one of our favorite series, Batman the Brave and the Bold. Yes, yes. Shadow of the Bat originally aired April 22nd, 2011, written by J.M.D. Mateus, directed by Michael Gogan. Uh, for our cast, we have Diedrich Bader as Batman, of course. D. Bradley Baker as Etrigan and Jason Blood. John DiMaggio as Aquaman and Black Mask. Tom Everett Scott as Booster Gold, Will Friedell as Blue Beetle, Nika Futterman as Catwoman, Gray Griffin as Fire and Dala, Nicholas Guest as the Martian Manhunter, Jennifer Hale as Ice, Jeremy Shada as Robin. You sure she's nearby, Blood? Vampires have a very distinct energy signature. Dala's not exactly a vampire. Her affliction may have been created in a lab but manifests itself in virtually the same way. Ah, I've got her now. You check the gardens. I'll search by the lake. Batman and demonologist Jason Blood track the vampire-like Dala to a park in Gotham City. Although she owes her condition to science and not black magic, Dala can still switch between hammer glamour and hideous bat demon instantly. She attacks Batman and takes him skyward. With Batman weakened by the attack, Blood calls upon his alter ego Etrigan the Demon. After an intense battle, Etrigan defeats the foe vampire. He offers to start work on a cure for her, while Batman drives off to deal with other matters. In the Batmobile, we see Batman has two tiny holes in his neck. Dun-dun-dun! Sometime later, in the midst of a jewelry store robbery, Black Mask and his gang encounter a darker Dark Knight, whose shadow-like form perplexes them. Black Mask himself is scared off a roof, but finds he cannot flee his now more fearsome foe. The villain screams as Batman drops in for a bite. In the Batcave, Batman shockingly takes his next victim, none other than Alfred, his faithful butler. Atop his ancestral home, the Cape Crusader briefly laments his 
insatiable hunger, but quickly plots a more satisfying meal and flies off. 22,300 miles above the Earth, the newly reformed Justice League International meets at their satellite headquarters. While waiting on the man who summoned them, Martian Manhunter, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Fire, Ice, and everyone else's favorite B&B guest star Aquaman, ponder why the Masked Manhunter would call an emergency meeting. Well, Booster and Aquaman are more concerned with more pressing matters. And what's bothering you, Booster? For your information, I had to send Skeets to cancel my much-anticipated appearance on the Jack Ryder show tonight, who's going to push my brand new line of Booster Gold menswear. Now you could definitely use a hipper look. Here's a coupon for 15% off at all participating stores. Thank you, but I'll pass. 15% off, you say? By Poseidon, those savings are outrageous! The lights go out in the satellite and Batman appears with a candelabra. Going full-on Lugosi, he invites his potential Renfields in for a sumptuous dinner while making cracks about putting meat on their bones. He tells their teammates there is no crisis, he was just lonely. And now due to the power outage, they are stuck out in the vacuum of space together. Of course, this and his shadow seemingly having a life of its own puts most of the heroes on high alert. Well, everyone except Ice. When the lights went out, it was due to more than a simple fuse. And until it's repaired, we'll all be spending the night together. Sleepover! What do we do? For now, we act as if everything is normal. It's not? Here's the dingbat of this, <laughs> yeah. by the way. <laughs> After crawling on the outside of the satellite, Batman decides to toy with his victims. He frightens Booster and Beetle and Fire and Ice out of their quarters. Throwing all pretense out the window, the demonic Batman attacks John and Aquaman. He manages to hypnotize the Sea King into submission, then bites him. John tries to reason with his old friend, and Batman briefly returns to normal with a cryptic message for the Martian. I sense you're trying to resist this evil, Batman. Open your mind so I can help you. Destroy me, John. You must change our orbit. Orbit? After turning into a plague of rats, the vampire vigilante transforms into fog and enters John's mind forcing him to relive the death of his family and his civilization before warding the monster off. It seems as if Fire and Ice have him on the ropes when the cowed crusader goes all night on Bald Mountain on them. He overpowers the ladies and then puts his meal plans in order. Which one first? Something hot and spicy, I think. And then, a delicious, cool dessert. Meanwhile, Beetle helps Booster concoct a garlic solution to blast the vampire with. When Batman is about to put the bite on the beetle, it appears Booster's knowledge of old horror movies has done the trick. Booster Gold, Vampire Slayer! Vampires and garlic? You actually believe that? But the devious detective is just playing with him. He soon adds both of them to his ranks. John returns for a rematch, but the vampirized leaguers arrive to help their masked master. As they are about to close in, Etrigan emerges from a mystic portal and spirits the Martian away elsewhere in the satellite. John fills the demon in on Batman's message about their orbit, who adds the sun is their only hope, through rhyme, of course. 
Batman and his unholy lot arrive as the remaining heroes struggle toward the bridge. The leaguers literally tear the shape-shifting Manhunter apart, but he manages to pull himself together and alter the satellite's orbit, pointing its windows directly at the sun. Batman and his minions erupt in flames. Later, Batman awakens in the infirmary to find Jean and Jason at his bedside. Turns out Blood had brought him to the satellite after he suffered from Dalla's bite. Even the ever-prepared Dark Knight hadn't counted on the massive hallucinations he just suffered. That's right, kids. They Bobby Ewing 90% of this episode. He's regaining consciousness. Blood? Jean? Jason brought you here after Dalla's bite poisoned you. I knew that her bite wasn't lethal, but I hadn't counted on the massive hallucinations. How are you feeling, Batman? Truth be told, I'm famished. So what do we think? I mean, it's one of those cases. It's a fun Halloween episode. You yeah, know. That aired in April. Well, yeah, but, you know. Before we move on, the opening is another flashback to Batman's Strangest Cases, in particular an adaptation of The Jungle Cat Queen from Detective Comics number 211 from 1954, with Bat Ape added in from Batman number 114 from 1958. That's where the credits for Robin and Catwoman come from. Uh, before we weigh in with more of our thoughts in depth on this story, I thought we should share some feedback we got from a very special source. I reached out to our buddy Rob Kelly, who was nice enough to connect me with none other than J.M.D. Mateus, the writer of this very episode, and of course, comic writing legend. Mr. D. Mateus has guested on several episodes of the Fire and Water Podcast Network with Rob and Shag, and he was very generous with his time and agreed to answer my nerdy questions about this episode. First, on the genesis of this episode, he wrote, It was brought to me. That's the way things usually work on these shows. They have a basic idea and bring it to the writer, whose job is to develop it into a full outline and then a script. Since he had used Dalla, who was the female vampire in Batman's first supernatural adventure in Detective Comics number 31, which we covered on House of Frankenstein a few years back, I asked him if he was fond of past Batman vampire stories. He schooled me on something I already knew but had somehow forgotten. The very first Batman story I ever wrote, way back in Detective Comics number 49, was a vampire story, Demetrius said. So I guess the answer is yes. I then, myself, Chris, proceeded to geek out about the Batman story where Batman punches the fangs out of a fake vampire only to find his servant is the real deal. That's a really cool short little Batman story. We should cover that next year. Uh, okay. When asked if he got any pushback from the staff, DC, or Cartoon Network for the subject matter or Batman's depiction as a vampire, he said, Since the story idea came from the producers Michael Jelinek and James Tucker, the show clearly had no problem. If there was pushback from anyone else, I never heard about it. But the way the ending ultimately played out could be an indication that there was some discomfort somewhere. He said he was asked to include the JLI right from the start and was happy to do it, which... I wasn't sure if he had suggested it or not since he was right. he and Keith Giffen wrote uh, the classic JLI series. He enjoyed working with the JLI and the Demon, another one of his favorites, who he had written in a previous Brave and the Bold episode. And then came the real corker. The twist ending was not his idea. Uh-huh. He wrote, The twist at the end wasn't in my script and I was surprised by it when I finally saw the finished show. I suspect that someone up the food chain wanted to undercut the horror of it all, but in my mind, what happened was real, not a hallucination. And here's how the story originally ended. 
He said, with Batman recovering from his vampirism in the Justice League sickbay. And then I asked him, oh, was Dalla always a science vampire, or was she originally meant to be the real deal? And he responded, the real deal. Mm. Uh, so there you have it. If you ever felt the ending to this one and Dalla not being real, a real vampire was a cop-out, then don't blame J.M.D. Mateus. <laughs> So, again, thank you very much, Mr. DeMatteis, for taking the time to answer my nerdy questions and giving us that great feedback. So, what do you think about it now? I, the thing that always struck me about this episode is the sound effect when he bites somebody. I mean, it just makes me cringe every single time. It's like, and it, I'm like, Ooh! It's like bone crunching. Yeah. Sounds like literally somebody crunching on a bone. I'm, it just, it, uh, yeah. It's like, just... Like somebody gnawing on a bone. Yes. Just like with their teeth. And I'm yeah. like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what always sticks out to me about this episode. I'm just like, Ugh. Just thinking about especially it. Especially when he first bites Black Mask, you really hear it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa. Uh, so Batman and Blood are tracking a real vampire, which makes sense since Blood is a demonologist, occultist, whatever you right. want to call it. Uh, she's vampire-like, so it works either way, but it works better the original way. I will say, for Batman always being such a loner, he sure works with a lot of people. Well, it's team-up show. Uh, <laughs> I know, but just saying. Okay. I love that the meter thing that Blood has says Nosferatu on it. It's like it's it's detecting a Nosferatu. Yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, I've said it to German. Hold on. Okay. No, now it says vampire. Okay. Uh, Dala's design is very hammer glamour. With a plunging neckline and lots of cleavage for a kid's cartoon. I know you appreciated that. It's got more cleavage than the Hammer movie did, I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, she's Again, got, I'm sure you appreciate that. She's got, pig. she's got a bit of Vampirella going on as well. Just gingerized. Yeah. She's a redhead. Uh, Again, you know, <laughs> you're a pig. And she's naked in her demon bat form, except for the bat symbol on her chest, which I think is interesting. You know, when they had... Uh, Francine Langstrom became the she-bat. They showed her with that little piece of white material. Yeah. Once, once you knew it was her. Now, when it was, you didn't know it was her before. She looked just like man-bat, which meant she was topless. Right. Which I always thought was interesting. But once we know it's a woman, we got to cover those things up. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, when she takes Batman airborne, you don't really know she's biting him. I mean, she's she's got her head turned into his shoulder and Batman seemed to be in pain, but it's not, not like... It's not telegraphed that she's biting him. Right. They, You know, it's like, well, is she biting him? And then later it's like, oh, yeah, she bit him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Etrigan is pretty Kirby-esque, but not as much as we'll see on JLU when we get to his episodes. Uh, Batman's got two tiny holes in his neck, like we said, but of course, no blood. No. Because we can't show that. No, no. Uh, I don't know if you caught this, but Batman's first vampire form is just a shadow with yellow eyes, and I'm betting... This is, is is an homage to Count Blood Count from that classic Bugs, Bugs Bunny short, uh, Transylvania 65,000. Remember the, the vampire that's, I am a vampire. Oh, yeah. I'm an umpire. You know, oh, like, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah <that's, laughs> uh, Black Mask actually falls off the top of a building. Oh, several, a building, man. Several stories building. Yeah, uh, and lives. Uh, no problem. And then Batman bites him and you got that sound. I, <laughs> No, no. I think the most shocking part of this story, this episode, is when he actually attacks Alfred. I know, that's his dad. Yeah, he's basically like Baron Meister taking the blood of his own mother. Yeah. You know, he took the blood of his, you know, adopted See father. Dad, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if this really did happen, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hmm. 
There seems to be just a touch of Kelly Jones' Batman and Batman's new regular look when he's not overly monstrous. And of course, Kelly Jones drew the Batman Vampire Trilogy starting with Batman Dracula Red Rain. So that makes okay. sense. The show's version of the JLI formed in Dark Side Descending from the previous season. And in the show's continuity, the original Justice League had disbanded for some time earlier. Uh, I see their headquarters called the Watchtower here and there, but it's straight up the classic JLA satellite. I mean, from the old comics, which is great. Uh, Will Friedle, of course, he plays Blue Beetle, but he's no stranger to Batman, having played Terry McGinnis Batman on Batman, Batman. Beyond, yeah. which is Andrew's favorite. Right. Nicholas Guest, who plays Martian Manhunter, is the originator of one of the most repeated movie lines at our house. I don't no, know, Margo. No. Yeah. From National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> I mean, Danny even says it. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Greg Griffin has been playing Daphne on Scooby-Doo since 2001 and also voices Black Canary, in addition to Fire, and Dalla on Brave and the Bolt. Uh, Jennifer Hale vo- voices Ice here in Killer Frost on this series and Justice League Unlimited. So she must have a thing for ice-controlling, ice-powered ladies or yeah. something. So. And speaking of JLU, Tom Everett Scott, who we know best from That Thing You Do, yeah, uh, voiced Booster Gold here and on JLU. So in one of the best episodes, The Greatest Story Never Told. Told, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you feel so bad for him. I'm like, I'm sorry, dude. I can't wait to get to that one. That is one of the very best episodes of Justice League. Uh, and of course, John DiMaggio is fantastic as Aquaman and in everything, but I'll always think of him first as Bender from Futurama. <laughs> Although I really love his Aquaman. <laughs> uh, have I mentioned that Diedrich Bader is my second favorite Batman voice actor after Kevin Conroy? To me. Well, he is me too, so there. No, I'm saying you've mentioned it to me. Oh, okay. okay. Well, I've mentioned it now on the show. So yeah, there you go. Uh, there's some great bits when we meet the Justice League International. Jean's eating cookies. Aquaman is reading his own comic book. Of course. And Booster is, of course, obsessing about the TV spot he dismissed. And I know Ice mentions I would have brought Ludafisk, which is I know that from Travel Channel. Channel, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's so much Lugosi Dracula in the dinner scene. He even takes Ice's compact away from yep. her. Uh, his shadow leaving behind him is like Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, though. Yep. I like that. Uh, Ice is so dense in this, she makes Aquaman look smart. Well, you know, she is frozen water. And he lives in water, so maybe that's the connection there. I don't mm. know. And she has a thing for him, you know. Yeah. She's just like, and she's like, you know, how dreamy he is. And, and Fire's like, he's married, I know, to his work. No. no Mara's going to kick your ass. Because uh-huh, she's crazy. <laughs> Literally. Mara's crazy? Well, she has been. Yeah. But she's not now. I know, but We I'm don't saying. mention that on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Oh. <laughs> we don't mention Mary being crazy. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry, Rob. I figure that's who I have to say sorry to. Yeah, it is. Yeah, okay. definitely. I guess vampires don't have to breathe in space because uh, Batman's out crawling on the satellite. I, I guess so. It's a nice Stoker homage, yeah. So, but it's nice. The bit where Aquaman is worn by the alien fish is awesome. Aquaman's like, he's here. And John's like, how do you know? They told me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that was cool. I thought that was cool. Uh, the flashback to Jean's past is actually pretty heart-wrenching and dark in a different way. And DeMatteis actually wrote the Martian Manhunter miniseries that kind of first established that Jean came from the dead 
civilization of Mars. Before that, it was like, oh, they were still out there, you know, and he went and lived with them on Mars, too, and all this stuff. And, right. But post-crisis, you know. But, I mean, it's such a, oh, my, I mean, Batman puts poor Martian Manhunter through the ringer. I feel so bad for him. I'm like, I'm so sorry. And I'm just like, here, let me punch Batman for you. <laughs> Asshole. I mean, it's just so, I mean, it's so cruel, it, you know? Yeah, it is. It really is. But he's pretty straight up evil once he's a vampire. Yeah. Uh, and then he's straight up Chernobyl from uh, Nine on Ball Mountain. Yeah. You say, it's, I mean, definitely there. It's, 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 it's a cool look, but yeah. I do, I do like Batman's line about uh, you know something something hot and spicy, then a cool dessert, you know, <laughs> with fire and ice. <laughs> That's genius. Uh, Batman suckers Beetle in by turning back to normal for a second and admonishing him for betraying him because he has been like training Beetle through the series. Right. And he's been like you know he's like taking him under his wing. And it, it, it's a cute bit when he's like he's got him hypnotized. He's like your neck, please. And he like makes it, you know, open up on his right. suit and then he you know, then later he bites him, so Booster is no Peter Cushing. No. Yeah, sorry dude. You know. So. I mean <laughs> Booster Gold is one of those characters that you're just like, Oh <laughs> But I love him for it. It's great. I mean it's great that they have a superhero be like that, yeah. especially on these shows. I mean in the comic books he's a little more it's got a little more substance to him than 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 that, especially outside of the Justice League setting. But but yeah, he he works great here. Uh, the zombie like vampire leaguers probably traumatized some kids. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm like I I would wonder about you know honestly show, showing this to say a kid under say seven or eight. Yeah, I probably honestly yeah. I mean it, your mileage may vary, but yeah, if you're kind of a kid that hasn't watched any thing any of the like older horror movies or yeah. is easily scared i yeah this this might be one you might want to skip until they get a little bit older uh they actually tear jean apart i'm not sure that's how a shapeshifter works but it it's a i mean they show his arm like throwing, I know. it's like it's like he's one of those old manglore toys that you were supposed to be able to tear apart and then put them back together and i'm not familiar with those things. they didn't Apparently, you never could put them back together. My mom, I wanted one of those. My mom called BS on. She's like, there's no way you'll ever be able to put that thing back together and stay together. I'm not buying that. And that was one of the few things my mom's like, nope, ain't buying it. Really? Yeah. Your mother told you no? Yeah, my mother told me no. Really? (laughs) I know it's hard to believe, but she did. Brenda Franklin told Chris (laughs) Franklin no about something that he wanted. Yeah. Huh. Wonders never cease. I'm telling you. (laughs) And then the Justice League dies in flames, but it was all a dream, except it wasn't supposed to be. Uh, I can't help watch this now and think that it would what it would be like if they hadn't copped out. Yeah, it's like, and I mean, you can. I mean, it's easy to watch it. It just just like turn it off or turn the sound down when they're in the infirmary, the sick bay. Right. Just turn it down and not and just see that Batman's okay and just well, you know, you're okay now, but you really were a vampire and. And then turn the sound down when he says Dala's not a real vampire. She's a science vampire. Right, right. And then it's intact, you know. <laughs> and then then you have, you know, Blue Beetle and Aquaman and Fire and Ice are dead. Yeah. No, no. I mean, they're not dead. I mean, they're... He didn't mean for them to die. They're all, you know, healing up in the... Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, he didn't mean... He didn't kill off the Justice League. I was just like, wait a minute. Let's talk about this. <laughs> no, no, no. He, did, he didn't kill off the rest of them, but... I, you know, maybe they sh- they maybe they would have shown the rest of them in sick bay and then 
panned over to Batman and then had the conversation oh, okay. with him. Okay. I'd, I'd say that's probably how it's going to work. But yeah, this episode is a whole lot of fun. It is a great Halloween episode. Uh, I mean, Batman's been a vampire. In the 80s, they did that storyline where Dala and the monk came back, and or it was like a reinterpretation of the first story. And Batman and Robin actually become vampires. The storyline scared the living crap out of me when I was a kid because I was like six or seven. Uh, at first, uh, scared me to death. Uh, it was Gene Colan artwork, too. It was Gene Colan artwork. You know, Gene Colan drew Tomb of Dracula. He knew how to draw vampires. Scary. Uh, so... Uh, but, uh, then of course, like we said, the, the red rain, the Kelly Jones, uh, they've made action figures of that, you mm -hmm. know? And so, so Batman as vampire is just too cool a concept to not go back to occasionally. And this is a really cool version of it. And the animated series was never able to do a vampire. They were going to use the Nocturna character who's not a vampire in the comics, but use her as a vampire and it kept getting shot down, and Bruce Timm and them finally just said, forget it. You know, they kept neutering it. The uh, broadcast standards kept oh, shooting them gotcha. down, and so they just finally gave up on it. So so Brave and the Bold actually managed to get a vampire story out there, even though they had to kind of cop Bobby out. Bobby Ewing it. Yeah, Bobby Ewing it. Yeah, as I said, yeah. <laughs> but it's a it's a whole lot of fun. Oh I, yeah, I really I, enjoy it. And thanks again to JMB yes, Mateus, most definitely, and Thank to you. Rob for connecting yes, us. So. Absolutely. So that'll do it for this episode. Join us next time for another installment in the Dark Podcast of Forbidden Love event and the final trip this year to the House of Frankenstein. And we should have a few surprises for you there. Hmm. So come back. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. And he is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast.
about, Freddy. Hmm? No, I can't help you. You've got to be strong. What? Yes, I know it's dark, but you've got to push. Yes. Push. That's right. Push. Now, just one little effort more. You'll soon be here. Come now. Come, my precious. Come, um, my little love. Ah, the master's waiting for you. Ah, 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 ah,